Welcome to the BMB podcast. I'm Chris Miller of the Foreign Policy Research Institute here today with Stephanie Petrella, editor of BMB Russia. Hey, Stephanie, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Chris? Doing well. We've got a lot to discuss today in Russian politics and economics, but let's start with the latest news on COVID. There's been an interesting trend the past couple of weeks where the situation in Moscow with the virus seems to be improving with lower numbers of cases reported. But in the regions across most of the rest of Russia, the case count is growing. How do you explain the difference? Yeah, so I think that there are three factors here that explain why cases are steadily declining in Moscow while they're rising elsewhere in Russia. So the first is when the various regions implemented these lockdowns. The second is the severity of the lockdown that they implemented. And then the third is when they started easing these quarantine restrictions. So first of all, Moscow was one of the first cities in Russia to implement quarantines. As soon as Putin declared that non-working week at the end of March, Sabyanin shut the city down, issued a stay-at-home order, and it took a little bit longer for Russia's other cities to do the same. The second is that Moscow has had an incredibly strict lockdown and other regions have not. So since early April, there's been a digital permit system in Moscow where individuals have to apply for this permit with the, the Moscow mayor's office um, in order to transit the city by you know, by metro, by car, by taxi. And if they don't have this permit, which comes in the form of a QR code, then the only ways they're able to go outside is to go to the grocery store, to walk dogs within a certain distance of their apartments, or to take the trash out. And that's really been it. So there's there's no out going outside to exercise or to get a breath of fresh air. It's It's been really restrictive. And this degree of quarantine has just not been the case in other regions. So when Putin declared this national non-working period, which I think to a lot of outside observers said they, they viewed that as a lockdown of the entire country, the Kremlin did actually leave it up to regional officials to determine which businesses they considered essential and which would be allowed to remain open during the crisis. And so as a result, you have these regions like Yaroslavl, where life looked pretty normal throughout the pandemic. And you can see this not just anecdotally in terms of Russians saying, yeah, what quarantine? We're not really taking that super seriously here. But if you also look at data from sources like Yandex, which has a self-isolation index that measures the level of activity on Russia's streets, um, whereas there was very little activity in Moscow, that was by far the outlier. And in many of others. Russian cities, um, you know, the level of activity did drop, but it was not as severe of a decline. And then the third factor is lifting quarantines. And so on May 12th, Putin declared an end to the non-working period. Rospotrebnazor, which is the um, consumer health agency that has been overseeing the pandemic in Russia, they released some guidelines for reopening. And I think a lot of regional elite took that as a cue from the Kremlin that it was time to return to the, what would be the new normal. Um, so they gradually started easing quarantines. And that certainly was not the case in Moscow. And even at the end of May, Sergei Sibyanin, the mayor of Moscow, was saying, you know what? We're looking at the epidemiological system situation here, and it's it's still bad. It's still not time to ease this really strict stay-at-home order. Um, and so I think that that has made all the difference in that Moscow, A, had a really strict lockdown, and then B, they just started easing this lockdown in the second week of June. So in addition to the, the divergence in case counts between Moscow and the rest of the country, there's also been a bit of a divergence in terms of 
politics. We've seen Sibyanin uh, play a, a big personal role in Moscow's response and at times seeming to diverge from the Kremlin's line, whereas other governors um, have, have, have basically been following um, the Kremlin's uh, press releases to figure out what to do. So what makes Sibyanin unique besides the fact that he's in charge of Russia's most important city? Yeah, so I think that last point is an important one, though. As the mayor of Moscow, Sabyanin has a lot more political capital than other regional leaders. He's not just some, you know, regional bureaucrat that the Kremlin decided to have run in an election. He's an established politician with a strong track record, and therefore he's able to sort of challenge the Kremlin in certain ways. Um, but I think the second and, and really important thing is that Sabyanin was specifically tasked with heading Russia's COVID response. So at the beginning of the crisis, the government created two working groups to combat COVID. The first was run by Prime Minister Mishustin, and that was focused on how the federal government would, would respond. And then the second was led by Sabyanin, and this was supposed to coordinate the response to COVID across Russia's regions. Um, and since then, as you've noted, Sibyanin has really been the face of Russia's fight against COVID. And it's really interesting to compare this to other countries where you see the president or the prime minister being the person giving daily addresses to the public saying, this is really serious, you need to stay home. And neither Mishustin nor Putin have done that. So granted, Mishustin did get sick for a little while. Um, he got covid but since he got better, he's he's not been giving these addresses like Sibyanin has. And likewise, Putin has focused really has really focused on the economic aspect of the COVID pandemic. Um, and so, as you mentioned, in the regions, the dynamic is a little bit different in that regional governors in Russia or are less powerful than an individual like Sibyanin, and they're more subject to the Kremlin's whims, and they they much more clearly answer to the Kremlin in that every year there's a wave of governor resignations, which means that a handful of governors get chosen by the Kremlin to be fired. And that's often because of a poor economic situation in the region or poor public sentiment. Um, and so I think, as you mentioned, throughout the crisis, these regional leaders have been looking to the center for cues on how to respond. Um, and initially, the government line was, we don't have COVID which was pretty remarkable, even in mid-May, the government was saying, well, we shut down the borders with China really early, um, and we basically avoided this pandemic that's wreaking havoc on the rest of the world. Um, that obviously became untrue pretty quickly. But then the government's line was, well, you figure this out for yourself. Look at your regional situation. And I think the message there was really, don't shut down and destroy your economy and destroy public opinion, which you're ultimately responsible for if it's not absolutely necessary. So I think that led to these governors taking a bit of a half-hearted approach um, just because they're trying to follow what the Kremlin was saying. And I think that that's also why we're seeing a lot of regions reopen, despite the fact that if you look at the actual statistics, it might not be time for that yet. So is is the right interpretation of Sibyanin's role as is someone who has actually been at odds with the Kremlin uh, in terms of timing of lockdowns and, and severity? Or or is that a narrative, this idea that Sibyanin is pushing back against the presidential administration? Is, is that a narrative that's basically been constructed by the Russian media, uh, but, but doesn't really accurately describe the, the policymaking process? I think that as quarantines are starting to be eased and the Kremlin looks really eager to get back to its political agenda, I think that that narrative is definitely true. It might not have been as true at the beginning of quarantine when 
you know, Russia, Moscow had a really bad epidemiological situation. And so I think at the time that people in the Kremlin thought Sibyanin's response was probably appropriate. But now that the Kremlin's, you know, trying to get this constitutional reform rolling and and get that out of the way, I think that it's been really interesting to see how publicly this battle between Sibyanin and Putin has played out. And you see this tension where Putin says, okay, we're moving forward with constitutional reform. We need lockdowns to end. We're going to have a parade. And then we're going to have this vote. And Sibyanin has sort of been responding, dragging his feet to all that this entire time, saying, wait a minute, you you gave me the authority to respond to the situation as I saw fit based on how the virus is spreading in Moscow. And looking at the situation right now, Moscow is not ready to reopen. And he was saying this even at the end of May. He was saying, we cannot ease restrictions until the number of daily new cases is in the hundreds or the tens, down from like 2,000 at the time. Um, but Putin nonetheless is saying, well, we're going to have this parade on June 24th. Um, and so you could see Sabianin gave Putin some concessions. He said, okay, well, we'll let people walk outside three times a day, you know, on designated days in designated areas. And that was definitely a step towards easing. Um, but at the same time, he extended lockdown until June 14th. Um, then one week later, reportedly after a call with Putin that weekend, Sabianin outright ends quarantine a week before planned. Um, and in the coming three weeks, he released this opening schedule and Moscow is basically going to completely reopen by June 23rd, the exact date, like the, the day right before this parade starts. Um, and so you can tell, though, that he's still really uncomfortable about this, which has been kind of interesting to see that he's saying, OK, we're going to reopen. We're ready. But at the same time, he's telling people to watch Victory Day parades from their television inside, as opposed to going outside by warning them that there are still really big risks and that COVID is still spreading. And so you can kind of see that at the end of the day, despite Sabianin being a pretty powerful politician in Russia and being able to push back on the Kremlin by, you know, dragging his feet and delaying Moscow's reopen as long as possible. At the end of the day, he still answers to the Kremlin. And and now he's been one of the main advocates for this constitutional reform vote and encouraging people to get out and vote, um, which is completely at odds with what he's saying about celebrating Russia's holidays or his general advice that people continue to remain at home despite the fact that the city is entirely reopening. So I guess you can see why the presidential administration would want to push forward reopening when you look at the macroeconomic picture, which in many ways looks pretty negative. What's your view on the, the latest macro numbers and um, what do you think the government is is strategizing in this regard? Yeah, so the macro picture is obviously not great. And that's to be expected. That's happening across the world right now. Um, so the latest figures are that in April, according to the finance ministry's estimate, GDP, nominal GDP, dropped 28% compared to April of the previous year. And that's obviously a really staggering figure. And there have been a bunch of other figures that are also, you know, just kind of shocking to see. Industrial production was down 10% compared to last year in May. And that's the biggest drop since October 2009. You know, official unemployment has spiked to 2.4 million which is a lot of people, but it also understates the scale of the crisis because of how the shadow economy works in Russia. Um, but at the end of the day, the government has, you know, the, the government has improved its forecasts for the end of the year. And 
it actually doesn't look too bad. So now the economy ministry is projecting a 4.8% decline. And that's actually compared to other, you know, compared to other countries in Europe, that's actually not too bad. That's kind of par for the course during this crisis. Um, And so that raises a bit of an interesting question about why has Russia's economic contraction not been as bad as elsewhere? And one answer is possibly that, you know, maybe the economy ministry is being a little bit overly optimistic. Um, It seems pretty clear that they're not accounting for a second wave, um, which also looks quite likely given that a lot of regions are prematurely opening right now. Um, Another point that makes it look like it might be a little bit unrealistic is that uh, real disposable incomes are only set to decline 3.5%, which again, sounds like a lot, but if you look at the past 10 years of real disposable income is either stagnating or declining. And if you look at the fact that in 2016, real disposable incomes dropped 4.5% when there was no pandemic, no you know sharp spike in unemployment, the economy didn't shut down. It definitely looks like maybe the economy ministry is being a little bit rosy in its projections. But at the same time, you know, that's definitely not the full answer. And there's this question as to why Russia is being slightly less affected than other countries. And um, I actually don't have a compelling explanation for that, um, especially considering that the government has not done all that much to stimulate the economy during the crisis. Um, they've spent about 2.6% of GDP on anti-crisis measures, which is quite low compared to other developed nations. So the other puzzle I think of Russia's uh, macroeconomic response is tax hikes. We've got tax hikes uh, back on the agenda, according to leaks uh, to Russian newspapers. And this is actually not the first time in the midst of the pandemic, uh, in the midst of a broader effort to stimulate the economy, that Russia's government is talking about raising taxes at a time when almost all the rest of the world is talking about lowering them, at least temporarily. So what's going on here? Yeah, it's... It's a really interesting question. So for context, um, for anyone who missed it, the story that came out this past week was that um, the government is considering introducing a progressive income tax, which would mean that right now everyone in Russia pays a flat tax of 13% on their income. And one of the proposals would be for individuals who earn two to three million rubles a year, which is roughly in dollars about, um, you know, 30 to $45,000 a year, um, they would pay instead of 13%, a 15% tax on income. Um, and so I think that there are two ways to look at this. The first is that this is politically advantageous. Um, one thing that the Forbes article cited a lot when it was it was talking to, to sources in the government, it said that you know, this is all about actually increasing fairness in society and that the coronavirus pandemic has really illustrated how, you know, some people have been hit really hard by this, whereas the wealthy have been, you know, relatively unaffected in a lot of ways and that it made them realize that they need to introduce a progressive tax scale where the the poor don't have to put as much into the system and the wealthy, you know, take on some of that burden. So on one hand, you could say, when in a crisis that has been disproportionately affecting lower class individuals, that maybe this actually makes sense and is a good time to implement a policy like this because it will allow the government to more effectively aid those individuals. And that also could be a rallying cry politically. On the other hand, the cutoff of, you know, two to three million rubles a year is not that high. Um, 
So the average, the median income in Russia last year was 475,000 rubles a year. So people making 2 million, they're certainly not the middle class, but they're also not, you know, the the filthy rich in Russia. And so I, this seems like a really curious proposal to be to be taxing, you know, well off, but not crazy rich individuals after this pandemic came and, you know, kind of crushed the economy. So I think that the ultimate motivation here is really to protect government finances. Um, Russia's had a budget surplus in the past couple of years and, and they were projecting to have another one this year. And then COVID came around and now they're projecting a four, four to six percent of GDP deficit, which is a big deficit. And I think it's something that Russia's traditionally conservative economic policymakers find, you know, that they it's really uncomfortable for them to think about such a large deficit. So I think that this might be a situation where the story was leaked. It's not actually intended to to be a rallying cry to get the poor on on the Kremlin side. But I do think that it's something that the government is probably considering. And it's been on the docket for quite some time now. Discussions were first raised in 2016 um, and have every year since then been something that the media has reported on. So I do think that maybe the the coronavirus pandemic and the way that that's really hit government finances is making officials say, you know what, now might be the time to do this in order to to earn some extra money for the federal budget, particularly as oil prices are, are quite low right now. So I wonder if this might be a situation like pension reform, where after the constitutional reform vote comes and goes, um, maybe the government will will start passing some unpopular legislation that they think is fiscally responsible. Okay, so final question, turning to the, the constitutional change vote, which you mentioned, uh, it seems like a sort of risky maneuver in the advance of a what looks like is at least according to the polls, ought to be a relatively close vote. Obviously, the final tally doesn't always correlate with the polls in Russia. But this seems like a risky maneuver if, if you were someone in the Kremlin. So what are they looking to get out of the reform vote? What does a win look like for them? And is there any chance that this talk of tax hikes actually does cause them problems uh, when they go to the polls in a couple of weeks? So I think a win for the Kremlin has a few different components. The first is they do want to hit this this 60-60 target, which means that turnout is above 60% and then over 60% of people who voted voted for the amendments. And I think that in the Kremlin's eyes, that's sort of the bare minimum for this to seem like a legitimate vote. Um, The second thing is that they want to avoid any blatant fraud. So from my perspective, the Kremlin is going to win this vote no matter what. But they would rather have it look cleaner than, you know, as clean as possible. So sure, there are going to be some accusations of ballot stuffing. There have actually already been some accusations of fraud in that people are being paid to create fake online voting accounts to to vote multiple times in the referendum or plebiscite because I guess it's not binding. Um, but as long as it doesn't look like they actually lost the vote and then completely changed the outcome via fraud, then I think that that's part of that's a success for them. And then the third thing is that there are no major protests afterwards. So as long as they get this vote passed without any major political unrest, I think that just getting over this hurdle will be considered a victory in the Kremlin. And I think that they have a pretty good 
chance of doing that. So the Kremlin is not, you know, particularly genius when it comes to politics. Their tactics are incredibly obvious. Um, they have this million prizes program in Moscow that is pretty much paying people to vote by offering by offering two million vouchers to go that that individuals can spend um, at shops in Moscow, but only if they vote. Um, things like that. They have this parade that obviously is going to lift spirits and you know increase national pride. Um, they have Putin giving speeches to targeted audience about what specifically has been included in the constitution for them, and and throughout the constitution there are all these nods to different groups. There are there are nods to conservative Russians with the anti-LGBT stuff. There are nods to poor Russians by including the fact that the minimum wage needs to be the federally determined livable wage, which has been a federal law for a while now. Um, and so I think that all these tactics are really transparent. It's really obvious what the Kremlin is doing here, but I do think they work. And there are a lot of really apathetic Russians right now who view this vote as a sham and they don't want to legitimize it by going to the polls. So the Kremlin doesn't need to worry from my perspective about losing the vote. The question is just making sure that they get enough targeted handouts to various groups to mobilize the people that are going to vote for the amendments to actually go out and vote. Got it. Well, we'll know in, in just over two weeks what the result is in terms of the turnout, in terms of the aftermath in Russian politics. So we'll get back on our next iteration of the podcast then to discuss the results. Thanks, Stephanie. Fun chatting about this. Thanks, Chris.